Let's pray. God, thank you so much, God. Lord, thank you for being so good. God, thank you for loving us in spite of us, God. Thank you, Lord, for the way you take care of us. Thank you, Father, that you'd even let us come to you and pray. God, you told us to pray for the sick, God. You said that the prayer of faith would heal the sick, God. We pray for the sick, God. Pray a special touch on those in need, God, for those that have lost loved ones. And, Lord, for him and his family, God, I can't imagine they've been through so much with their cancer of a little girl and thought it was gone and, and then shows back up, Lord, with a vengeance. But, God, you knew all things. You knew ahead of time, Father. I thank you for grace, God, even grace that I saw on faces of families today, God, just how your grace holds us up when we can't stand. Thank you for your peace, and thank you for your long-suffering and patience with us, God. And Lord, I thank you for this book. I thank you for your word, this living water that you gave to us, Father, to help us navigate this life, to teach us and to strengthen us, God, and to draw us closer to you. Father, I pray you do that tonight as we look here in your word, God, that you gave us in the Acts of the Apostles. Lord, I pray you'd use this to strengthen each one of us, God. I pray you'd help us, Father, to draw closer to you. We love you, God. You've been good to us, Lord. We pray above all that you'd be pleased with everything that happens. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we left off last week. We were at Acts um, chapter 21. If you want to be turned there in your Bibles, y'all remember we left off there at verse number 8. The next day, we were the Paul's company departed, came into Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which is one of the seven which abode with him. Now, Luke's been pretty precise. I know we said we'd pick up with Philip, and I know we talked about him some on Sunday morning, but we're still going to talk about him a, a little bit more. It was just, it was amazing as I was studying for Sunday morning and how this story of Philip and all came back. It's just crazy how God ties things together and how God will put things in context for you to, to help you understand some things when you're trying to learn. But, you know, Luke's been pretty precise about telling us how they travel, travel on the ship and where they're leaving from and where they're going to. And even when they passed by Cyprus and he's given some updates, even in the original journey, he talked about how the company took the ship, but and Paul, he wanted to walk, so he walked the distance and met them there at the next port. And, you know, here he, he didn't tell us how they traveled, and they certainly could have gone either way. This is, this is one of those, they could have gone along the coast, or they could have taken by a ship. But the fact that he doesn't say anything about boarding a ship or getting off a ship, we would tend to probably assume that the group probably walked together. But one thing that we do know here from this text is they entered into the house of Philip, and it talks about one of the seven. That's one of the seven original deacons of the church you know when the when the apostles said appoint yourselves out seven men and they were talking about the grecians wives and taking care of the matters in the church you should appoint yourself so he's one of the original seven deacons there and we left off last week we were looking at it and and then sunday morning we talked about how philip went down to samaria when he went down and he and he preached the gospel and it was back in our study if you remember it you know, we're back in chapter 8, and we've looked at it many times, but one of, one of the times was there, how the Jews have no use for the Samaritans. They, they consider them dogs. They consider them unclean. They don't have anything to do with them. But yet God sent Philip down to Samaria to preach the gospel. And, and so Philip goes down, and what we looked at Sunday morning was from chapter 8, verse number 6, that the people with one accord gave heed to those things which Philip spake. You can't present a clear presentation of the gospel and people not be changed. You, you can't present the simplicity of the gospel. Now, are you saying that everybody you give the gospel to is going to be saved? Absolutely not. If that was true, the world would be a whole lot better place. 
But, but you cannot clearly present the gospel, especially in a group of people, as what you had here, a, a multitude of people, and somebody not be touched, somebody not be saved. And so Philip preaches the gospel, and hearing and seeing the miracles which he did, unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and had taken many with palsy that were lame, and then many were healed, and it says there was great joy in the city. And then from there, if you remember how God sent Philip down the road to the south toward Gaza. And you had the Ethiopian there. The Ethiopian had been to Jerusalem. He had obtained a copy of the book of the prophet Isaiah, or what, not the book of, but he had at least a part of the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And, and we talked about how he went to Jerusalem looking for something. It's important. Here, I'm going to give you something. He, he went to Jerusalem looking for something from God. He didn't leave his homeland and take this whole caravan of people and spend all this money with all these camels and all that went that it took to get to Jerusalem. He didn't just go to Jerusalem. It wasn't sightseeing. It wasn't a, 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 a vacation cruise. He went there looking for something. He went there looking for something from God. He, he wanted to know something more about this God. So much so that he gets to the Pharisees and all those religious leaders in Jerusalem. They didn't have what he wanted, but they gave him a copy of Isaiah. So he's going back and he's reading, but he can't understand what he's reading. Here's my point. You will never look for God and God not come to what you're looking for. Nobody will ever search for God and not be found by God. Nobody will ever seek to develop a relationship with God and want to have a oneness or peace with God and God not show up in there. And what we see is that Philip is preaching in Samaria. The multitude is being saved. He's doing a great work. God said, y'all ready? God said, leave all his people, leave all the church, leave all the multitude, leave where the many are being saved and demons are being cast. I want you to leave all that for one. Y'all with me? To make you feel more special? Because he did the same thing for you and I. Whatever was going on that day, everything else stopped for one. One is important to God. I realize numbers are a big deal. I know behind that plaque is a judgment journey, numbers, and there, there's 90-something thousand souls that are saved on there, but there's not 90-something thousand-something on there to God. There's one 90-something thousand times. And we see the importance of one that God took Philip. So I want you to go down there and I want you to explain to him. So then we find out that, that he leads him to the Lord. And, and, and from there he, he's baptized. It says that when they come up out of the water in Acts 8, 39, that the spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the Enoch saw him no more. He went on his way rejoicing. So he's excited about what God's done. His soul's been saved. He found what he was looking for. He didn't find it in Jerusalem. He didn't find it in the scroll. But what he found it in is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Philip presented the gospel to him. And it says that Philip was found at Azotus, passing through. He preached in all the cities until he came to Caesarea. And so that's where we pick up here. That's how he got to Caesarea. Azotus is the name. It used to be the old Philistine city of Ashad. It is now a Roman province. Philip reached there. If y'all remember, after he left there, he went up and he preached his way along the coastline. He made it here to Caesarea, which is, uh, we talked about it back, back in that day. It's, it's the Roman, it's, it's, the, it's the capital of the, of the Roman province there, of their administration. But that was the last time in Acts chapter 8 when we looked at Philip's and he settled in Caesarea. That's the last time we see him. Until now. 
God moved him all the way around in spite of all he did and all the preaching in Samaria. He sent him down for just one down there at the road to southward Gaza, the Ethiopian. He sent him up. He preached all along the coastline. He brought him here. He settled down. He's been here for about 20 years now. He's got a family. He's got four daughters that we see here in the text. And, and God put him there and established a place. God knew that 20 years later, Paul and company would be coming back through. He'd have a place. Yeah, anybody thinks that coincidence, you're missing the whole mark. God is always preparing things for us. God always has a plan. There, there, there are no accidents in God's economy. There are no coincidences in God's economy. Everything God knows ahead of time. So everything that Philip is doing, you, you have to understand the importance of making of Philip being obedient to everything that God wanted him to do. Now, the deal is, had Philip not been obedient, God would have put somebody else there. The apostle Paul and the company would have had somebody else to stay with, but somebody else would have got Philip's blessing. The same is true for us. That's why it's important to, to do things. That, you know, we talked about it when Philip was there. Hey, man, Philip could have argued, I'm doing a great work here. Look at all the people being saved. Look at all the demons being cast out. But you want me to go down the road to the south end of the desert for what? He didn't tell him what he's going for, but if you're going into the desert, you can't be going in there looking for much, right? But he did what God said, and it's worked back around. So here you are 20 years later that God put all that together to do something, and now they come back, and it says that he had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. Now, you can get about a million opinions from a million different people on what that means. He had daughters, which did prophesy we know for certain that these women didn't speak or preach in a church they didn't preach in a synagogue and for no other reason it was forbidden in the culture of the day if, if you didn't have anything else you had culture and culture is a big deal right the, the culture of the day wasn't anything like that so we know that the, the fact that they prophesied is not unusual and it's not even unscriptural it doesn't mean that they explained the scriptures because they weren't scribes it doesn't mean that they're, they're, they're speakers in public, that they're speakers uh, at, at the synagogue or at the church or anywhere else for that matter, but because they're, they're not priests. They're not allowed in that culture and that day. They're, they're not allowed to, to speak even in Christian assemblies. But what it means is just what it says. It says they did prophesy. That's not surprising. Acts chapter 2, we saw where Peter quoted Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my, of my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So, so these girls, they have the ability to prophesy. They have the ability of, of telling future events. One thing's a little surprising to me. We, we know that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. We know that holy men of God moved as the Holy Spirit moved and, and spake through them. So by the hand of Luke, the Holy Spirit tells us that, that these girls prophesy but he remains adamantly silent about it. They don't prophesy anything here concerning this. And the reason that's a little surprising is because of the event that we're in. Paul is being prophesied. He's being told through the spirit of the dangers at Jerusalem. We'll see here in a minute that it's prophesied to him that there's dangers in Jerusalem. And here it tells us that, that these girls prophesy, but it doesn't say what they prophesy about. One would tend to think if they prophesied anything in this case, it would be Paul, you better stay out of Jerusalem. 
there, there, there's some bad things going to befall. But, but it doesn't tell us that. So uh, assuming they do anything, verse number 10 says, As we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. Now, this is not the first time that we've met Agabus either, nor is it the first time that Paul's met him. Back in chapter 11, verse 25, then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to, unto Antioch. Came to pass that whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. In these days came prophets from Jerusalem to Antioch. There stood up one of them named Agabus. So we see this isn't the first time we meet him here in chapter 21. It's signified by the Spirit. That there should be a great dark throughout all the world. So he sees a famine coming. And then that, that famine came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. So he didn't just prophesy it. He prophesied and it came true the disciples in chapter 11 verse 29 every man according to his ability determined to send relief unto the brethren which is what in judea and they also they did and they sent it to the elders by the hands of barnabas and saul so even in that day barnabas and paul with saul at the time delivered some goods they delivered some help to some other christians but verse number 11 here in our text says, When he was coming to us, he took Paul's girdle. Talking about Agabus, he comes. This is the prophet. He comes to where Paul is. And he took Paul's girdle and he bound his own hands and feet. And he said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost. So, so he, he's fixing to give some serious prophecy. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. It's the same thing that we saw last week when they were on the ship and, and they got off there. They, they landed at Tyre in 21 verse 4. Finding the disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit, he should not go up to Jerusalem. Now you got Agabus saying, hey, whoever this belongs to is going to be bound uh, at the hands of the Gentiles. They'll deliver them to the Gentiles. And, and then here this week, verse number 12, it goes on. It says that when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. So they're begging Paul. They're begging Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. You, you heard what they said at Tyre. You, you heard what Agabus said. Don't go to Jerusalem. There, there's something dangerous. Now, here's the deal. This is one of those things I, I kind of don't really understand yet. So I just have a, a little bit of what I feel like maybe the Lord might have shed a little bit of light to help me to understand. Uh, but, but God hadn't given me a complete understanding of why does God continue to warn Paul about the dangers of Jerusalem? When the Holy Spirit himself is the one that told Paul to go to Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit has a plan. He has something for Paul to do, not at Jerusalem, but at Rome, but it's through the way of Jerusalem by chains and imprisonment. So the Holy Spirit's got something for him to do. Why does he keep warning him like he's trying to get him not to go? Why, why does he keep giving him these, these heads up dangers are waiting on you? You got, you got problems coming. You remember... We just looked at it in chapter 20, verse 22. This is not news to Paul. Paul's not surprised by what they're telling him. Chapter 20, if you want to back up there, look at verse 22. Paul said, I go bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. He says, it's waiting on me. Bonds and afflictions, the Holy Spirit's already shown me. 
There, there's some hard times coming. None of these things move me. Neither count I, I, my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Remember, we looked at Paul said, I, what he says here, kind of advanced, I'm going to finish my race with joy. I'm going to finish my life in joy. Now, what he doesn't know, he doesn't know that he's got basically 10 years left right here. For all he knows, he's got 10 days left, or he may have 30 years left. He doesn't know. But what he does say is, I'm going to finish this course with joy. That there's some things the Holy Spirit sent me, chains befall me, troubles are waiting on me, but I'm going to finish with joy. And what we know is over the next 10 years, it starts right here as, we, as we'll finish up this evening with him basically starting to butt heads a little bit with the Jews. He ends up arrested. And for that next 10 years, it's all imprisonment, it's beatings, it's pain, it's suffering, it's snake bites, it's shipwreck. It's everything that sounds joyful, right? I mean, just like the party I want to go to. But yet he finishes, he finishes race, and he finishes course with joy. But but it's because everything he did, he did, he did for the Lord. So so these warnings. Um, here here's my thought. It, the warnings can't be for the apostle Paul. It, the Holy Spirit's already told Paul those things wait on you, and now you get to Tyre and they told you those things wait on you. And now you get to Philip's house and Agabus comes and he tells you those things are waiting on you. And Paul's like, I already know that. I'm going anyway. So here's one thing that I can be pretty confident about. The Holy Spirit knows the zeal of his servant. The Holy Spirit knows that he has Paul's attention and Paul's going to do what he told him to do. And he's not worried about scaring him off. He, he's not worried about putting fear in Paul. He, he's seen Paul back when Paul was Saul. He knows the zeal that this man has. He knows the zeal that he has for serving the Lord. I don't think the Holy Spirit's worried about scaring Paul off. So he continues to put these warnings. They're obviously not for Paul. Would anybody agree with that? I mean, he's obviously not warning Paul to get him not to go if he sent him there. So that means the warning's got to be for somebody else, right? So you got these people with him and they're hearing these warnings and now they're begging Paul, don't go. Paul, Paul reiterates what he said in chapter 20. He answers him, what mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? That's what he told him. He said, I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I, I don't, I, I think these warnings are for the people, one, the people is with him. The, the people that are with him, they see Paul's strength. They see Paul's faith. They see Paul's trust in God. But I have to believe it's bigger than that. If the Holy Spirit took time to touch Luke, to write it down, to put in the Acts of the Apostles, that for more than 2,000 years, everybody's going to read it, including us, then who's it got to be for? Nobody? Yeah. If he took time to put it down and preserve it for all that time, then all that stuff is there so that we can see how much Paul trusted in the Holy Spirit. We can see that God always has a plan. Sometimes it's not going to make sense to us. Somebody say amen. Sometimes stuff happens in our life. We can't see how God could have allowed that to happen, but God actually had a purpose in the plan. Sometimes God allows things, and, and we're not going to understand why they come up the way they do. But those are the times when we're just going to have to revisit our faith and determine whether or not we trust him. 
There's times been in every one of our lives, and there's more times to come when we're just going to have to revisit our faith and say, am I going to trust him this time? And in those times, you're going to have to look back at the times when you did that before and go, he got me through that one. And he said he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he got me through that one. And he said he's the same yesterday and today and forever, and he said he'd never leave me nor forsake me. And, and he said that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and if he got me through yesterday, and, and I really believe that I have a home in heaven, so I believe he's going to be there for me tomorrow, then I'm going to have to trust him today. So I, I don't know. I just Obviously, to me, the warnings weren't for Paul. I was just trying to look at what they're for. And to be honest, I, I believe they're just me. But Paul's, Paul's mind is made up. You, they're not about to discourage him. Remember what we talked about over the past couple of weeks. Paul, right before leaving on this journey, he's finishing up the third missionary journey, he's just written the letter to the church at Rome. And when he wrote the letter to the church at Rome, he said in 838, I am persuaded that neither death nor life. Remember? Y'all know the verse very well. I am persuaded neither death nor life, nor angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height, death, any other creature. None of that shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is persuaded, and nothing's going to change his mind. Now, here in our text, verse number 14, it says that he would not be persuaded. We ceased saying the will of the Lord be done. So Paul has been persuaded by the Holy Spirit to go. Paul says, I am persuaded to serve the Lord. I am persuaded to go to Jerusalem. I am persuaded to do whatever it is that the Holy Spirit wants me to do. And nothing else is going to persuade me otherwise. Not, not the discouragement of friends. Not, not the, the fleshly warnings of friends. Not even Agabus, a prophet who prophesied that, that a famine would come, and it did. And you know that. Not even the prophet could come in and say, whoever this belongs to, you got some bad times coming at Jerusalem. Not even that could persuade him not to go. Because he started when he says, I'm persuaded. That means my mind's already made up. My mind's already made up that I'm going to serve God. However it works out for me in the flesh, my mind's made up I'm going to serve God. Whatever comes my way in my life, my mind's made up I'm going to serve God. See, we, we could have took a turn right here on casual Christianity, which is alive and well in America today, that, that there's a lot of people, their mind's not made up. I'm going to serve God on Sunday morning most times because I'm going to get up and go to church. That's about all I got for it. I'm going to serve God most of the time until things get bad. I'm going to serve God until somebody in my family gets sick. I am persuaded to follow God until it don't work out like I think it should. I'm persuaded to follow God until it looks like life makes a bad turn. And at that point, my mind's not made up anymore. That's not Paul. That's not Paul, and I think that's part of that whole story why he puts that warning in there to let us see what it looks like. When your mind's made up, when you make up your mind, I'm following God, and nothing's going to change that. It doesn't matter. Paul says, death doesn't matter to me. I mean, what's the worst thing they can do? Kill me and put me in the presence of the Son of God? What's the worst thing they can do? Make me absent from the body that I might be present with the Lord? You think I'm scared of that? That's the best thing you got to offer me, and you think it's the worst? What Paul says, I am persuaded. And that's what we've got to learn right there. It doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what those around you say. It doesn't matter what's prophesied in that direction. 
if we're persuaded, then we got to be persuaded and not let anything shake it. After those days, it says that, that we took up our carriage and went to Jerusalem. So what we know is that, that Paul is headed on to Jerusalem now. And of course, it helps a lot that we have the whole story, right? I mean, we don't just have the trip to Jerusalem. We've already got all the way past Nero killing him. And we got the whole story. We got the all the way to the end. So, so that certainly helps a lot. But, but he's on his way to Jerusalem because his vision, what the Holy Spirit has given him, is the desire to preach at Rome. But not just at Rome. He, wants to, he don't want to just preach to the church at Rome. He, he don't want to preach to the choir. He wants to preach to the lost at Rome. And Rome is the ruler of the world. It's the most powerful nation on the world at, at, in the world at this point. He wants to preach to Nero. He wants to preach to the top cheese. He wants to preach to the elite. He wants to preach to soldiers. He wants to preach to people that can make a difference in the Roman Gentile world. Now, what chance does a traveling Jewish preacher who has some Roman descent, a Roman citizenship, but most people don't know that in that time, what chance does he have of talking to Nero? What chance does he have of getting to talk to soldiers? Well, it increases a lot when you're chained to them all night long, doesn't it? It increases a lot when you're in prison with them all the time, doesn't it? What chance do you have of, of talking to Nero? Well, it increases a lot when God sends you bound into Nero's house to get to talk to him, doesn't it? So, so does God have other ways he could have sent him? Yeah, God could have sent him there and could have made it happen any way he wanted to. But what we have to understand is this is the way God chose. And, and, and whether anybody seems to like it or not, it was God's plan and it was effective. So they took their carriages. They went up to Jerusalem. Verse 16, they went with us, us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea and brought with them Manson, Mason of Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. God has everything on this journey laid out where they stayed with Philip and even where he has to stay right here. Now, when they, when they leave there at Philip's, they've got about a 65-mile track left. And, and they're walking, remember? So they've, they've got a pretty good walk. They've got a pretty good bit of time to talk about it. But they get there. God has a place set up. You've you, you got to try to gather the picture. He's got a place set up for the Apostle Paul and his Gentile friends to stay. Anybody remember where they're just now getting to? Jerusalem. Paul still probably isn't the most popular person in Jerusalem. Paul is still not the most trusted person in Jerusalem. Paul is still not the gospel's elite in Jerusalem. I understand to us he is the apostle Paul. The great apostle Paul, as far as I'm concerned, among the greatest, if not the greatest, of all the apostles. He's the writer of 13 books of the New Testament. 14, if you want to credit Hebrews to him. You make that decision yourself based on looking. But, but to us, he is the great apostle Paul. He's the one that gave us the book of Romans. He's the one that gave us the simplicity of the gospel. He's the one that gave us all the letters to the churches. And, and so to us, he's the great apostle Paul. To them, he's a troublemaker. To them, to many of them, he's still Saul of Tarsus. To, to many of them, I've heard this Saul of Tarsus was a change, but I ain't seen it. 
How many of you knew some people from your childhood that was rough as a cop and you heard they got saved and you still wonder about it in your mind because you ain't seen it yet? You're like, man, that joke, God saved that one. He's like me. If God saved that, he can save anybody. There, there's some people that's heard Saul of Tarsus. They, they might have heard he's changed, but they ain't seen it. But, but, but we talked about it recently, and this is just real. Even some of those that know Saul has changed, and even though some of those know that, that Saul is different and he's been washed in the blood, they understand what's there. Some of those widows are still widows because of Saul. Some of those orphans are still orphans because Saul had their father killed. Some of those homeless people are homeless because Saul took their homes. Saul was a bad dude. And now he's coming back to Jerusalem. This is not where he's the most popular cat coming to town. So, so finding places to stay may or may not be the simplest thing to do. But God prepared a place. God has a spot there for him. Well... That's all free. I don't even know where I'm at. What verse was I on? 16? 16. Jerusalem, 16. So, so it says that when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. That, that's about probably the only positive part of the story here, at least in Jerusalem. At least it starts out. What looks like it's going to be a positive note, right? You get back and the brethren receive you gladly. And I mean, besides, they're bringing a lot of money. Y'all remember that, right? All the different churches took up collection and all these people traveling with him are representatives from the different churches. And they're bringing a lot of money from, from these other churches to bring it to care for the poor and to take care of the church at Jerusalem. So they come and, and, and here they are. The, the brethren received us gladly, but notice the money ain't even mentioned. So that's really not a big deal. It, it, it is the Paul, it's because Paul's heart that he wants to carry it back. But, but that's not really his reason for coming back. It says, verse 18, of the following day, Paul went in with us unto James and all the elders were present. So now you got all of the elders of the church at Jerusalem. This would, this would be James, the half-brother of our Lord. It's obviously not James, the, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee. We know that Herod killed him a few years ago. Scholars agree that, that James, right here, that he's the head of the church. We, we've looked at that before. We already know he's pretty much the head uh, of the church there at Jerusalem. Um, they also say that more than likely, based on events and none others being named, there's probably not any other apostles in Jerusalem right now. They're, they're probably all out doing the Lord's work. They've been sent. Peter and those guys are definitely not here. But, but scholars agree that, that they don't think there are any other uh, of, the, of the apostles present there. But verse number 9, it says that, that when he had saluted them. That, that would have been a mutual greeting. That would, that would have been, you know, it's the same as here. We salute people on Sunday mornings. We shake hands, hug neck. Um, maybe both. You shake a hand, hug a neck, shoulder, a little side hug. In, in the day, it would have been a bit of a neck hug. It wasn't, it was part of custom to maybe a kiss on the cheek. So they're saluting one another. They're greeting one another. They're, they're some glad to see one, one another here. And, and then he begins to tell them about the great things that God has done through the Gentile regions. He, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. Remember, he's back to Jerusalem now. He's back to the people that didn't want anybody to go to Samaria. That, that's why Philip had to go. 
He's back to the ones that didn't want anybody having anything to do with the Gentiles. And remember, even Peter has his own issues with that. Even Peter himself wouldn't fellowship with a Gentile if a Jew was present. And he and Paul got in somewhat of a debate over that. But because the blood of Jesus and cleanseth all. So, so here he's back and he begins to tell them about what great things he's done among the Gentiles. Now, this may be some of these elders' first time to ever meet Paul. Maybe, maybe their first time to ever hear Paul speak. But it's, it's not for James. Remember in chapter 15, verse 12, all the multitude kept silence, gave audience to Barnabas and Paul. They're basically on trial here. Declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. So this ain't the first time Paul's been questioned about preaching to the Gentiles and seeing Gentiles saved. Verse number 13 after the, uh, of Acts chapter 15, when they had held their peace, James answered saying, men and brethren, hearken unto me. Now that's several years ago, but, but James stood in defense of Saul and Barnabas. James stood for him. So, so James kind of understands the score. Now here Paul is in Jerusalem. He's got some more great stories about what God has done. And he's telling the people, about how the Gentiles have been saved. And, and look at verse number 20. It, it's just kind of a two-edged sword. When they heard it, they glorified the Lord. That's awesome. They glorified the Lord. They gave the Lord credit. They're praising God because Gentiles have been saved, right? Souls have been saved. They, they glorified the Lord. They said in him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe. And are all zealous of the law. See, they glorified the Lord. That they called him brother. That's a good sign. That, that's a sign of acceptance. They called him brother. But, but they're kind of setting the stage, pulling in. They said, thousands of the Jews also believed. So we know at Pentecost, 3,000 believed that day. Now you've had 25 years of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ around Jerusalem. So you've got thousands of Jews that, that have been saved, but they are all zealous of the law. Jesus came to what? Fulfill the law. John Gill's exposition of the Bible says, this is, this is of the law of Moses. The ceremonial law, as Paul might see there being at Jerusalem to keep this feast. Remember, that's why he came, is, is to be part of the, uh, not the Passover, but 50-day um, Pentecost. For though they believed in Jesus of Nazareth as the true Messiah, yet they had not light enough to see that he was the sum and substance of all the ceremonies of the law. He is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament law. We've been reading the Bible through in a year. You've been reading. How many have been reading all week about the blood? Everything's about the blood. And everything's about you got to bring this lamb and this sheet and this ram and this turtle dove and the blood. And it's over and it's over and it's over and it's on and it's on and it's own and that was the law that was the thing they had to do jesus christ fulfilled the law but what they're saying here's the jews are keeping the law so so john gill says that they believed in jesus of nazareth as a true messiah yet they had not light enough to see that he was the sum and substance of all the ceremonies of the law and they all ended in him Therefore, were zealous in the observance of them and could not bear to hear of their removal. Paul just told them thousands of Gentiles have been saved. Thousands of Gentiles have been brought into the family of God. And their reply was, thousands of Jews have too. 
and they also keep the law of Moses. They are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it therefore? The multitudes must needs come together, for they will hear thou art come. So they're questioning the Apostle Paul. Let me back back up to that verse. They're informed that you're teaching Jews among the Gentiles to forsake the law that we just told you. All of them are zealous about keeping. Well, let me ask you something. If you got to keep one law, then you got to keep all the law, right? So if they're zealous about keeping circumcision then they got to be zealous about the sacrificial lamb. They've got to be zealous about bringing the sheep all the time. They got to be zealous about all the law. You can't just pick and choose. So, so, so they are zealous about this law. And, and he says they, they've heard that you hear. What, what are we supposed to tell them? This is probably, probably a great disappointment for Paul. Paul's been out on this journey for about three and a half years, maybe a little more. And Paul is expecting to come back and talk about what great things that God has done. And he's hoping that, that everybody can see the unity of the church. He's hoping that everybody can see the unity of the Holy Spirit. He's hoping that everybody can see the unity of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that saves both Jew and Gentile alike. He's hoping that when he comes back that the Jews will understand what he wrote in his letter to the church at Rome. That whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whether Jew or Gentile, no matter what language, no matter what color, no matter what country, no matter what nothing. That everybody is one. The ground is level at the cross. He's expecting to hope to come back and talk about how God through the name of Jesus Christ and the blood of the Lamb has done a great work all across the land and a multitude of Gentiles have been saved and have been added. And remember when he talked about other sheep which I have, God has gathered it up and he's brought all the family together. And Paul is hoping that they'll see the oneness of the body of the church. And they said, mm-mm, not so fast. You said they don't have to keep the law. Well, thank God we don't. Thank God that the blood of Jesus is sufficient. Because if I got to keep the law, that means I got to keep everything. And that means my sins aren't erased in the blood of Jesus. I got to go out and find some sheep. Probably, probably a pretty disappointing time there for the Apostle Paul. The fact that they closed out with that statement, that they, they, will, they will hear that thou art come, that leads us to believe that, that there's still a lot of them there at Jerusalem that still believe the Apostle Paul is a troublemaker. And what they're saying is now that Paul is in town, they're going to expect trouble. And, and they're going to ask questions. You've been saying that they don't have to keep the law of Moses. What do you think we're supposed to tell them now that you're in town? Well, truth be known, you tell them the same thing. The blood of Jesus is enough. Amen. Well, I'm out of time, Lord willing. We're going we're gonna to pick up there in a couple weeks. Revival starts Sunday night. Hope all you guys can be here at 6 o'clock Sunday night. Dr. Joe Arthur will be here Sunday. Freedom Sound will be here singing. Looking forward to seeing um, Pastor Hugo Ortepeza and, and Jay Hernandez and their wives again. Excited about having them back on Monday. You probably saw the message come out today. Pastor Benny Tate sent me a thing over. Um, letting Noah be with us. But he and the choir from Rock Springs be with us on Monday. 
Um, Dr. Joe Arthur will be back on Tuesday. He's bringing a singing group from up there at Harvest Tabernacle at, at his church. They'll be coming with him. And then on Wednesday, Joe Arthur will be back with us again. I hope you'll be here. So it'll be a couple weeks before we pick back up. But I want to read. This is the book that I referenced. Tim gave me a couple weeks ago that I read. But I want to read something to you because it's talking really about Paul right here and what we're studying. And, and we'll close with this. But it says... The one specific lesson that we must all learn is that the Spirit is the absolute Lord of the harvest. And we must look to Him for guidance and direction. The Spirit will not always guide us into fruitful fields of labor. He may lead us to do the work of plowing and sowing. He may lead us to labor for years among Muslims before any harvest could ever be reaped. The Spirit will not always lead us into paths of easy service. But we must be prepared to follow His guidance. At all costs. Being persuaded is a powerful word. But if we're really going to get to where God wants us to be, we're going to have to be persuaded that I'm going to follow him no matter what. Because just like with Paul, the path may not always be easy. The road isn't always paved and smooth and the grass isn't always green. But if it's the way the Holy Spirit said, go, it's always right. It's always right. And there's always something successful at the other end. It may not seem personally successful, but we're not in this for self. It'll be successful for the glory of God. Amen. Thank you, Father, so much for this book, God. Thank you, Lord, for the life of the Apostle Paul. Thank you for showing us this, God. Thank you for showing us, Lord, that sometimes hard things befall, even the Christian, God. But you always had a way. You always had a place. You always prepared things ahead of him, God. You always were with him. You always took care. And God, through, through even his hardships and his trials and his suffering, Lord, probably, probably millions have been saved through the preaching of the gospel of these books, God. Lord, we love you, Father. We thank you so much. I pray you'd help us to be pleasing to you in all that we do. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.